This is Empowered Human Academy. Welcome home. This is about love. This is about light. This is about the idea that you, you contain everything you will ever need. And this life of yours, this is where you expand, you grow, and you remember who you are. I'm Abe. I'm Isaac. In Empowered Human Academy, we join with humans of all kinds to feel the inspiration that can only come from empowered living. The stories you hear today are unique, but the energy? The energy you hear today is yours, too. So, with hearts wide open, let's begin. Thank you for being here. Hey crew, this episode is Pay What Feels Good. Rather than pulling in sponsors and paid advertisements, we are excited to try something different. I'll talk more about this at the very end of this episode, or you can read more at empoweredhumanacademy.com. Hello, Empowered Humans. We're thrilled that you're here. First off, thank you so much for your support in helping us spread the word after launching last week. If you're enjoying what you've heard so far, it would mean the world if you would take a few minutes to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. That simple action really goes a long way in helping increase the visibility of the podcast. We're deep into election season here in the U.S., and wow, it's a lot. For many of us, this is the most polarization we've ever seen. And now, more than ever, we need voices that deeply care about the state of our democracy to help clarify what's actually at stake in this election. Catherine Gell is one of those voices. When we first met Catherine, we were instantly blown away by the expansiveness of her thinking. She's a political innovator, systems thinker, co-author of The Politics Industry, and is deeply concerned about the trajectory of American democracy. Catherine is passionate about ensuring that community and business leaders are aware of the problems and become part of the solution. To her work in political innovation, Catherine brings extensive background as a business person, serving as president and CEO of Gell Foods until 2015. She has also served as vice president at Bernstein Investment Research and Management and as special assistant to Mayor Daley for technology and economic development. And in 2010, Catherine was nominated by President Obama and then confirmed by the U.S. Senate to serve on the board of directors of the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Throughout this insightful conversation, we explore how to build your capacity for taking risks, becoming less reactive, and implying intentional constraints to your freedom in order to free up your willpower for the long game. Catherine is a brilliant mind, and this conversation couldn't be more timely. So let's get into it. We are with our friend Catherine Gell. So as part of this conversation, I really just want to invite everyone to listen with open ears, open hearts and get to know someone who we find inspirational and who we think you can learn a lot from. So Catherine, welcome. Can you tell a little bit about yourself and how you've come to who you are today? I am a business person and a mother and a friend and someone who is deeply concerned about the trajectory of I could say the world, but that almost makes it too big. I am deeply concerned about the trajectory of the United States, our democracy, and its failing foundations. I used to publicly care about issues mm-hmm. and things, policies, problems that I wanted to talk about. And now, if we were to talk about that, although our focus is other for the moment today, I would not put my focus on a specific issue other than a system of democracy that if it functioned well, 
would allow us with all of our diversity and different ideas and even on top of the enormous challenges current and those that remain from history we'd be able to get together and figure out a way forward we mm -hmm. could figure out a way forward even though it's hard so that's why i've left business and I work full-time now in political innovation, which is to say, how can we change our U.S. political system so that we could solve problems mm. for real people that would make a real difference in how people in our neighborhoods, you know, across the country are living. And that's what I do. And it's fun. And it's rewarding. And in the midst of this time that is so challenging and distressing and, you know, it's good to have something that I, I look forward to, not in the short term, but in the achievable term that I think could make a difference. Yeah. Amazing. I'm, I'm smiling so broadly as you're saying this, because I'm also somebody who thinks in, and not, not to project, but I, I, I think in systems and I, I light up whenever I see an opportunity to retune something so that it's natural health and brilliance can emerge. And we can, when everyone starts to bloom, that's the goal, right? For me, and, and it sounds like in a similar way for you. Has that kind of thing always been important to you? How does Catherine connect with that kind of idea? Is it natural for you? Have you always known that you care about this sort of thing? How did you establish a scope for it? So there's no question that thinking in systems has always been natural, even if those weren't the words that I put on it a long time ago. I mean, we just all have an orientation, right? And there's a logic that it's almost like something in my mind is always mapping onto what's going on. It's like a computer back there constantly revising the structure that I see playing out. But when the light bulb went on for me, I went into business sort of unexpectedly. I was planning a not-for-profit career in education and education transformation. All these things. Long story short, I ended up in business and I realized I don't know anything about business. And I found a book by a man named Peter Senge. I'm pretty sure he was at MIT, and it was called The Fifth Discipline. And it was about systems thinking and all these maps about one thing leading to another thing. And I had never seen anything like that before. I actually lived in Chicago at the time, and I bought it at, I think it was a huge Barnes & Noble right on Michigan Avenue. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was amazing. Now, what's interesting is he made it really complicated. And it turns out that to make a difference in the world, I mean, his work is still super valuable, but we don't necessarily need to get that complicated for us. Totally. You know, so there's like the academic deep dive of everything. And then there's just understanding, you know, cause and effect. And usually cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. And so... If I were to say my view on systems thinking now, I would say the most important thing for me is to figure out enough to understand what is causing and affecting, but then to figure out if there's a dysfunctional cause and effect going on, mm -hmm. where do we get in the circle? You know, there's always a chicken and the egg. Mm -hmm. There's always a villain in the circle. You can find one or more. But if it's not a villain whose behavior we could alter, mm -hmm. I sort of let it exist in the system and look for the weak wall in, look for the Trojan horse way to get in to what's wrong and take my eye off the stuff that's wrong over which we have no power. Mm -hmm. And I think 
that that is probably a difference of me now than me 15 years ago, where I was so offended by anything that was wrong in a system that it was hard to tamp down my outrage and be productive to focus on the, to, to focus on the things where I had agency and power. Really? And in the end, of course, if you focus where you have agency and power and you disrupt a dysfunctional system, you eventually, you know, sort of take power out of those things. But, you know, I just liked to be right. Mm. I like to be right. And of course, if there is a villain and, you know, you can make an argument, it can sound really good and you can say, why what they're doing is so wrong and everything, but it just makes no difference. Right? Mm-hmm. Makes no difference. Was there a point in time where you stopped caring about being right so much or, or maybe you still do in your own way or, or how's the relationship to that changed? <laughs> well, let's see. If you ask certain people in my life, I think they might say that I still care a great deal. You know, that doesn't go away. I mean, I care about being right. And of course, there's a good side to that as there is a good and bad side to sort of any intense personality trait that we have. Really? But where I became so self-aware of it... Mm-hmm. As in, I understood that that was driving me versus that I knew people told me that. Because, of course, when people told me that when I was in my 20s, I would think, well, yeah, because I am right. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. Yes, I get that you tell me I always want to be right. Well, because I am. And I went to a course. I took a course called the Landmark Forum in my early 30s. And at the end of that course, in the three days, I remember one of the things that I stood up and said I specifically remember standing up and saying, you know, one of the things I've really taken away here is how exhausting Mm. it must have been Mm. to be my friend or my family member Mm. because I was so attached to being right, even when it didn't matter. Let's even assume I was right about something. I wanted to be right even when I didn't need to. Mm -hmm. Like, what difference would it make if you tell someone 10 ways to Sunday how wrong they are? You know, like, and also I am wrong more than I thought then. But it was also less about, am I right or am I wrong? And more about just how helpful is it to be so concerned about being right versus the other person? Like, because I wasn't just right. It was, and you were wrong. So, but here, what I said at that time is I said, you know, it must have been exhausting to be my friend or my family member. And I said, and I realized I could hang in there with that way of being. Hmm. And, you know, I feel pretty good. I'll be right for a long time and I will be very right and very alone. Yep. Makes sense. And if we think about it, it's not just I'll be alone, so I'll be lonely. Mm-hmm. If one is alone, one is making no difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, oh, I don't want to be right so I can have friends. That's good too. But also, you don't make anything happen by yourself. Absolutely. You being right all the time doesn't make anybody want to work with you or, you know, want to have fun. I mean, it's just so, it was so crystal clear after those three days. And it's definitely changed my life, as have so many things, candidly. Mm -hmm. Something changed my life last year. Something changed my life about two weeks ago. Like, just an insight. And it's like, if you told me a specific insight like 10 years ago, it probably had the same potential impact on me, but you can only absorb so many things at once. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And you need to be at a certain point in your journey in order to ingest or make something resonate with you. Digest. Digest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so along your journey, 
it was a while ago in your 30s that you had that course. How has that changed your perspective on yourself and how you lead and how you think about the work that you're doing now? So the major difference from you know me pre-Landmark Forum and post-Landmark Forum is my willingness to take risk. So remember I said I was into being right. Mm-hmm. So I, and I talked about it as being right versus other people, but there was another thing. There was being right and not failing. Mm-hmm. So I had had success in many ways, but the secret was I was only doing things that I knew I would win before I started. Mm-hmm. You know, so I knew it was going to be hard. I'm not saying I only did easy things, but I pretty much knew that the risk was calculated and I would win. And again, not win compared to people would be successful. So sure. once I started realizing, oh, I need to start doing things where it's not clear that I will be able to be successful, mm-hmm. then I would be living more on the edge of what's possible. I would mm-hmm. be creating. And then of course, if you can do that and you succeed or you fail, you're actually somewhat more capable after either success or failure, and then you can try the next thing. So I, by finally starting to take risk and risks as defined by what made me comfortable or uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, like worried about how something will be perceived or how I think actually failing is usually failing in the eyes of someone else in some ways, you know, like, yeah, I think most of us don't mind so much failing. Like we don't really mind fall tripping and falling in our living room. Cause you get back we up. kind of mind falling on the street. That's a good way to put that. Yeah. In fact, I think people would rather trip and fall in their living room and hurt their, and like sort of sprain their ankle and be on crutches than trip and fall in public and hurt nothing. I think that metaphor has a lot of really interesting applications. Yes. I think you're correct. So it sounds like your priorities have then and maybe since then have been shifting from like a model of living that you, I'm using a bunch of words here and tell me when they stop applying to your actual situation. Mm-hmm. You had, you shifted from a model of living where you were doing a thing that you felt like you needed to do, like you, you needed to be right. You needed to not fail publicly. You needed to succeed at all of these things. And you've become more, I don't want to say productive because you were very productive with those things, but your, your, the focus of your productivity has shifted into changing the world around you. How, how would you describe, like at a very abstract level, what do you actually care about? Why are you doing the things that you're doing? What's your actual priority underneath? Well, first of all, I care about making a difference in the world, but I cared then. But sure. now what I'm willing to risk to make the difference and the freedom that I have okay. in the way I respond to what happens. Okay. I was very stimulus response. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and things triggered me and I went there. Yeah. Right? Sure. And now, uh, well, uh, let me back up. So have you guys ever seen Stephen Covey's Seven Habits? Of uh, people? Okay. It's a, it was really famous when sure. I was, you, you know, right out of college. Yeah. Sure. Okay. And he shows that animals, you know, have a stimulus and have a response. And so do humans. But there's a difference. There's a space for humans between stimulus and response Mm -hmm. where we can reflect and then we can choose. Do we want to respond this way? And I thought that was fantastic. And I learned that in my 20s. And it was really helpful. But it turned out there was a limit, which is I got really good at pausing 
And in the space, I would say, ah, yes, I should do X. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll give you an example. There was, I I don't want to do too much details just in case someone I know watches this, but (laughs) there was someone in my life who I didn't care for. And every time something would come up, I would say, oh, yes, but that's not helpful. And you need to let other people be there. I would do a zillion things about why I should not be upset. And then at the end of all of the reflection, I would say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to hate her anyway. Because mm-hmm. I wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, like I knew I shouldn't. I knew it wasn't hell. I knew all those things. And I just, I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give in to what that was. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the freedom to actually take advantage of the space between stimulus and response. Mm-hmm. And after I took the landmark form, it's not instant, but... It was, I mean, in some cases, it was pretty instant, but then it's something you practice over time. And then I just got a lot better. Again, not perfect, but a lot better at really maximizing my freedom yeah. to choose. Like not being a master of, you know, this is how I've responded since I was a child. And I just do that. I'm just, and of course, we'll be practicing that for the rest of our lives. Totally. Yeah. That's what's changed. So I have a freedom to be, I'm willing to fail. I now do things worth losing, mm. which is different than doing things I'll know I'll win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I do things worth losing. And I also try to only do things worth losing, you know, mm. as in don't rail about things I know I can't make a difference about. Sure. So it's this freedom. I was not free mm. to be or to contribute mm. or to freedom. Yeah. What does freedom feel like to you? Feels bigger feels more creative. It feels more connected because if you're free, then there's an opportunity for other people to contribute to you, you know, cause you're not already set. Mm -hmm. There's no space for contribution with a person who's already decided everything. So it feels better. Well, and you've been talking about freedom and it's interesting because in the media, we see a lot of you know, I have the freedom to not wear a mask and it's become really politicized. And, and the freedom that you're talking about is in your mind and, and your sense of being. And I think that's, I think those two kind of narratives, the one that you've been sharing with us and the narrative that we see on, on the media, in the media are quite different. And I think like, in my opinion, and I mean, we, you can kind of share your opinions on this too, but one is more open and constructive and another sometimes, not all the time, but what I've noticed is sometimes can be more destructive and isolated. Like, I don't care about my neighbor, stuff like that. One more idea. And then as we continue to talk about this, there's also an interesting distinction there too, because the freedoms that you're talking about as discussed nationally right now, those are like granted or elected or voted for freedoms, as opposed to a freedom that you choose for yourself. Sure. And that's a difference between, or or a freedom that you come into as a, as a conscious person. Yep. That there's there's a nuance there as well. Yeah, you know, so I would say, so freedom does not mean a free-for-all. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel free, but I have tons of constraints and principles and values yep. and intentions and responsibilities that I must meet sure. in that freedom. So freedom is almost freedom from the internal limitations. Mm. It's not freedom from responsibility. It's not freedom from the external. 
like, oh, I don't have to listen to anybody kind of freedom. Sure. It's, oh, I don't have to listen to that voice inside my head kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, we don't want total freedom. Mm. There's no possibility actually in that. There's a fabulous book, Atomic Habits by James Clear. Love. I hope you get his once a week newsletter. I do. I do. Oh my gosh. How can you come up with that many insights every week in those short little, you know, I can come up with insights, but they take me 20 minutes, you know, whereas he's got a sentence. Okay. So he says, constraints liberate. Mm -hmm. Okay. We need guidelines, Mm -hmm. you know, because we can't just have every choice imaginable available to us, every choice of behavior, every choice of response. And we have short lives. And if people think they have a better idea for how to live in community with other people in a shared geographic space, you know, and they think somehow they should have freedom to create a whole new vision of how humans are together. Like that's not the freedom I'm talking about. I know the freedom to actualize and the freedom to be and the freedom to let others be. Mm -hmm. And to be the optimal healthiest version of yourself kind of what James kind of focuses on is how to make these habits and consistently perform them in order to have a fulfilling and optimal. The word optimal is coming to my mind because this group that you know I'm forming, I want people to operate in their most truest self and it's so individual, right? Your individual optimization is so different than mine. It's so different than Isaac. And how do we understand that? How do we give ourselves space to explore that? Because it's, we're so inundated with so much all the time that it's, I feel like it's been difficult in my past to be like, okay, I'm looking everywhere. What should I do? What should I do? Oh, how am I, how am I ever going to feel like myself? I need to please everyone. And I need to please myself. Like all at the same time, it's just like so (laughs) overwhelming. So that's interesting that we've been talking about this. This segues nicely, I think, into something that I've been wanting to ask you about. Freedom works well with a certain set of constraints, but it's important for me and maybe generally for the constraints to be something that are actually, how do I say this, that, that align with who you are, like the, the problems that you choose, right? Like you, you, we can evolve our life into often into something where the constraints that we have are things that we want to work with. And one of the things that I immediately like was inspired by about you is that from what I perceived you had structured your your life and your patterns and, and many of the things that I could see visibly anyway in such a way that you were freed to work on the things that you cared about the constraints again all my, my own perception and maybe I'm misperceiving the constraints that I saw were things that you had chosen so that you could exercise your freedom in a way that felt best to you is that is that fair is that unfair yeah I mean what I it's very much a becoming aware of our mortality in a limited time awareness saying, mm-hmm. okay, I've only got so much time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just endless choice. Sure. So mm-hmm. I need to choose wisely. And therefore there are some things I'm going to say, oh, I don't do that. I don't do that. And I, I don't pretend that I can just make everything happen because I can't. So I set up structures. I get help in some things and then do other things, you know, where I sort of feel that's my best area. Sure. So I try to work with people who are really good at things I'm not really good at and just not try to, in some ways, do everything. And I will, I think one of the things I'm interested in adding to our conversation is maybe something that's even like a, a couple levels of granularity down mm-hmm. because we're all resonating with this sort of big talk, right, about yeah. freedom. Yeah. But what is it, or constraints. 
if I could, I'll just say a couple totally doable things for anybody who was listening to this. Absolutely. So here's a constraint, and I probably told you guys about this already, but this is a constraint that has really made a huge difference for me. Hmm. You know, here's my phone, and I have been wasting enormous amounts of time on media. And even if I'm reading good stuff, I'm not necessarily playing games, but like, oh, I'm reading this fantastic article or this book or even this academic, whatever, or I'm watching TED Talks, you know, like I'm learning, et cetera. Still, there's only so much time to learn instead of do. Do, yes. And I might learn more, but if I'm pretending to be playing with my child while my while I'm sort of looking over here, I'm not present, you know, all that. Okay, so there's only so much willpower. I, I get addicted to my phone mm. and addicted to news and reading. So I gave my daughter, she put a security, my daughter's 14, Alexander. She put a security password on my phone and then, so I can't get in there. So I do, and it's meant for controlling your child's access to things. Totally. Wonderful. So, so sh- I don't have Safari on my phone. Hmm. I don't have email on my phone. I don't have the app store. I can delete apps, but I cannot add them without my daughter freeing up my phone. Because what I would do is I would take off Safari, but then I'd be like, you know, I really need to see the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to download the Wall Street Journal's app and then I'll see that. And basically I had to put a lot of constraints around myself so I don't need to use my willpower to keep myself off my phone. Sure. And then now what I'm doing is leaving my computer in my office at night so that I can't then go to that. And let me tell you, I don't miss it, but if it's there, I will get that addiction back within like 10 minutes. Totally. If I happen to have brought the computer up, I'll stay up till 1 Mm a.m. looking at stuff. So if I want to, you talk about, you know, the health and everything. If I want to be healthy, those are the kind of constraints I need because I have to save my willpower for other things. So I invite people to really look around their lives and say, what things could I make really structurally difficult for me? Yeah, absolutely. So segueing into the work that you're doing now, can you share a little bit about the work you're doing now, the book you just published, and then also what the, your day-to-day looks like and how you stay centered within yourself with all the interviews you do with a lot of the different press everything you're doing right now how do you continue to stay catherine throughout the whole process in such a crazy time especially right now yeah okay so i published my book thank you for asking about thank you for reading it thank you for liking it by the way and it's again all about political change and i do hope anybody who is listening who's concerned about the trajectory actually buys this book and shares it with people because it has a really compelling analysis lots of really fascinating stories in it about what's really going on and it's not really what we think but most importantly it has solutions that we can achieve which is the best part of the whole thing and so my full-time work is to try to drive forward this nonpartisan political change so that there's a connection between solving our problems and getting reelected where there's currently not that. You're better off not solving problems if you want to get reelected, which is a crazy design for any political system. So we need to change that. I love doing that work. But as far as how I like manage my day, again, I 
going to James Clear, constraints and habits and structures. So I have, I'll show you, this is my Panda Planner. And the part of the Panda Planner that has turned out, I've been using this for about a year and a half now, to make the most difference for me is not the calendar part, but it's it's just this top of my day. So I live, well, we're all living in Wisconsin now. Isn't that great? We all live in Wisconsin. And so I start my day and I'll have a coffee. And then I look at here and I do something called two chairs, which is another book. And so I sit in my chair and my prayer life is talking to God who is in the other chair. Hmm. And part of how that dialogue works in the morning is I'm talking about real stuff, you know? So I have this panda planner asks you to put down three things you're grateful for. Sometimes it's things or situations. It's mostly people for me. Then three things you're excited about. Mm. And then I've added a piece, which is three people I'm praying for, mm. which tends to be about two thirds people who I would like to have support in their challenges and maybe one third people I'm sort of praying almost a prayer of congratulations or, or appreciation or something, although that's sort of in, in grateful. And, and prayer, it's not a rote prayer. Sometimes when I'm doing the praying for support, I'm not really saying, God, please cure this. Can't. I'm saying, and now I am sending this energy towards this person. So those set of three things... And the grateful and excited I've been doing for the you know, year and a half, the praying for part is newer as making it part of the actual structure. Hmm. And so I do that. And then I read a certain poem every day, which is this. And it's from Walt Whitman. And it's just amazing. I, actually, I got to send this to you guys. You'll really like this. And then yeah. I read this poem. And then I have my conversation with God. And then I write down all the things that I want to do that day. And what's also interesting is while I'm having these conversations or even thinking about what I'm grateful for, what keeps coming into my head all the time is things I have to do, like even in the middle of that conversation. So I just keep writing them down and then I come back to the conversation and I write them down and come back to the conversation. Because what used to happen if I tried to pray or reflect without also having this is I kept getting distracted and thinking about the things I needed to do. So now I allow both to exist by having a place to write down the thing I need to do and then go back to thinking on this. And you know, they say that, right? If you spend time thinking about what you're grateful for, it supposedly makes you much more happy. Mm -hmm. And it does. So this is my structure. Oh, and then it asks you to put down like a quote for the day. In fact, I bet I could find in here places where I was grateful for you guys. Mm -hmm. I'll find one and I'll send it to you where you appeared on my, you know, what I'm grateful for. Thank you. I have two more questions. Do you have yes. any? I have so many directions that we could go in. So go ahead with your questions and I'll interject. Yeah. And I just want to respect your time. So quickly, I'm fascinated with people who do important work and how their humanity shows up in that work. So for instance, um, when you're working with Michael Porter, someone who is really, you know, world renowned in his craft, or, or, or you are interviewing with CNN or wh- whatever you're doing, when you're in front of people or institutions or whatever that either a lot of people or really high importance in leadership or whatever, how do you show up as yourself? And what thoughts go through your head when you're talking about your work 
I'm asking this question because a lot of like people might have performance anxiety or feel like they have to like show up in a in a non-authentic way and like you you know what you're doing and you know what you're passionate about. How do you stay grounded in that when you are in front of people that like you might be intimidated by or there's a large stake at hand or something like that? For me it's more how do I allow myself to continue to be worried about the fact that it's high stakes or that I care if this meeting goes well and I care what these people think about me and I care what the audience reaction is and I care if I say something stupid. I totally care. Yeah. And then kind of doing it anyway. Yeah. Which is now I'm doing all these interviews. Yeah. I'm sure if you wanted to cut something out of one of my interviews and take it out of context that you could make me look bad. I mean, I think could do that to any person who's been interviewed on a tape anywhere. Sure. And also sometimes I'm sure I do say things that I didn't really mean it to, to be that way or whatever. So how I do that is I just do it anyway. Meaning my ability to do it comes from all the other things we've previously talked about, like this freedom to recover from being embarrassed, this freedom to and this ability now to do things worth losing. I mean, that, that's the whole point. And so after something's really embarrassing or something, I'm just like, okay, well, that's good. Cause that means I had an audience, you know, that was listening that was big enough or important enough or significant enough for me to be embarrassed in front of. Totally. I mean, if I wanted to look, I love my daughter's class, for example, but if I wanted to speak to them all of the time, I probably wouldn't have a lot of fear of being embarrassed in front of her class. And again, they're amazing people, you know, but if I am going to be recorded on something that's going to be watched by tens of thousands of people on YouTube, well, you know, I'm a little nervous that I'll record something odd, but how, what a great opportunity to have that. Yeah. So you show up, you just, you just do it. That's great. You just do it. And then you take, you know, what comes, but don't, don't wait for it to feel like you're ready. Hmm. My strong view is all those people that look like they believe they're ready have their own insecurity about it or the way they've dealt with their insecurity is by, you know, developing perhaps an over inflated sense of self so that they don't have to feel the insecurity. Whereas if they were honest to themselves, even they should feel insecurity, you know, so everybody's got their thing and then you don't end up worrying as much about their things. That doesn't mean the voice in your head doesn't tell you about their things. Totally. Okay. So the voice that that's, I think the better way to put it, the voice in the head does not go away. Like, Oh, how could you have said that thing? Sure. And then you go, Oh yeah. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know. Mm-hmm. And you move on. So the voice is there. You just don't listen to it nearly as much. Amazing. Thanks for sharing that. I know that a lot of people and including myself sometimes, like we all have those voices. And I mean, this is a project that is came out of nowhere, but it's something that I'm excited about. And I think that can help a lot of people. So I'm just doing it and we don't have a beautiful setup and that's fine. We're showing up and that's beautiful. So cool. It's so fantastic when I see you guys, you know, so young and you're just fully living. It's amazing. Now let us say for a moment, cause I know we share this belief. We have already a lot of freedom when we come to this. It is a luxury for us to talk about, you know, freedom from the voice in our heads because we are not worried about our jobs right now, Mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. 
or our fears for our family members out in the world. Mm-hmm. So I just want to just acknowledge that for a moment, like, because I know, again, I know we feel the same way. I mean, we're lucky to have this freedom to have the problems with the voice in our heads sometimes feel like the biggest problem we have. Accurate, yeah. Because yeah. it's a luxury. And that's part of the point too. That's why we have to make the most of it. Totally. Because it's such a gift and privilege to have. Um, and therefore, complete responsibility. Absolutely. Something that's delighted me about what I was hearing, and I'll, I'll absolutely claim this as projection because something that I've been working on a bunch over the last several months has been recognizing behaviors or, or attributes of myself that for a long time I've, I've hated and I've tried to change and I've tried to tamp down or ignore or carve out or things like that. Mm-hmm. And I've learned in the past couple of months that in some cases, sometimes there are things that I can unlearn and that's real. And sometimes there are things that I can design around instead, like knowing, knowing something about myself whether or not it's my favorite attribute, like doesn't mean that I need to carve it out of my life. I can adjust my life so that knowing what I know about the ship that I'm captaining, <laughs> I can steer in a way that respects the vessel and the environment. And I'm hearing that in you with something as small as your phone usage. And, and by the way, the, the reversal with your daughter, like giving her the keys, that's delightful. I, I love that so much. But between and that, she can't complain quite as much when I have hers, right? <laughs> uh, that makes me sorry. Sad. No, no, that's wonderful. Between that and like recognizing that the voice in your head may never go away, and I'm going to do the work anyway, and I'm going to make choices, knowing that this part of me may never change, and that is not going to prevent me from doing the thing that I care to do. And I, I called this I was projecting originally, not to take ownership of this, but um, to say that that's something that is relatively new to me. And it seems very important. That's what I think, what I that. <laughs> I, I think it is. Oh, what fun. So what fun to talk to you guys. Yes. So the last question, just to end off, after your, all your career experience, personal experience, what do you know to be true? That life is really short. Hmm. In a profoundly sad way. And yet that in and of itself being good because if we didn't have all the people we didn't like losing or weren't afraid to leave the people we love, you know, then wouldn't matter so much that life is short. If there wasn't so much work to be done and contribution to make and problems to fix, life is short. And so this poem that I said I read every morning, it gets at that and it gets at how it is to exist in the middle of human existence, which is short and of human troubles, Hmm. which always exist and seem overwhelming and human frailty, meaning we and everybody else is so imperfect. And so you got all of that and somehow, well, I'll just read you the last of this. What good amid these, oh me, oh life, Answer, that you are here, that life exists, an identity, that the powerful play goes on, and that you may contribute a verse. And that's what I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing and being vulnerable and, and showing up. We really appreciate your time, and that was really, really beautiful. Friends who are watching this, 
go check out the politics industry and follow our friend Catherine's work. It's amazing. It's important. And we love you, friend. And thank you. Y'all, the whole point of everything is to open up ourselves in all the fullness we are made for, and then to create, create, create with everything that is real and true and bright. That's the work of a life. That's what we're working on. And you're here because you feel that for yourself, too. And we believe in you completely. Thanks for joining us this round. And hey, for every conversation in this series, including this one, we've assembled a downloadable set of notes, table questions, a journal prompt, and some action steps that you can use to bring the energy and the lessons of this conversation home to your own life. Head to our podcast website, empoweredhumanacademy.com. Hey, thank you for being here. Now get out there and do something that feels exactly like you. We will do the same. And for us, that includes bringing you the next conversation. We cannot wait. Have an awesome, awesome day. This podcast is the work of Lightword, our company, named for that toward the light direction which informs every single thing we do, including money, which means, like everything else, the way we earn revenue as a company is not based on industry norms, It's based on what feels deeply right and aligned by passing through the door that feels like it has more behind it, not less. And the way we keep this podcast going is all lightward. It's pay what feels good. It's an exchange of value between you and us. We're keeping conventional podcast advertising totally out of this. Here's how pay what feels good works. We give you this episode because it feels good to do so. And then you consider, honestly, what number of dollars this episode is genuinely worth to you. I do not care if that's $3, $1,000, or literally $0 and a heart emoji, as long as that trade genuinely makes your day better. The energy there is the entire point, and that is what we're building our business on. No advertisers, no selling your attention, just you and us trading value in a way that builds us both up. So whatever the number, when you're done listening, head to empoweredhumanacademy.com and hit the pay what feels good button. We use this policy across our company's work, and I'm excited to bring it here to the world of podcasts. This is us voting for the world we want to see.